nothing's built to last, but the things that we've, I mean, but the things that really, that we've, we've grown up accepting as just sort of the way things are, um, we're seeing kind of fracture and that's really scary because I would really like to live to, you know, die of old age. You are now tuned in to drink this podcast. Matt and Paul G. Chatting top quality. You know, they always got a free talk policy. Guests speak honestly. No apology. Full spectrum from politics to comedy. Please listen responsibly. A few brew in, chance of animosity. A couple more brew when the crew getting wobbly. No matter this, the park place of podcast monopoly. Drink this podcast. Welcome to Drink This Podcast. We're an Edmonton-based podcast where we celebrate good drinks and good conversation. My name is Matt. Sitting with me today, as per usual, is Mr. Paul G. Say hello, Paul. Hello. And sitting with us today, as per usual, is Miss Mia Steinberg. Say hello. Hello. Uh, we are brought to you in part by the Seen and Heard Podcast Network. A podcast today keeps the boredom Ooh. away. And Karen lists a slew of great shows of produced right here at Edmonton. Seen and Heard in Yag.com. Remember to rate and review us on whatever platform you use to listen and check out our website, drinkthispod.com. So, new plan for today. Um, we've, uh, we've been running the show uh, a little bit interview style lately, and it's worked out good so far, but sometimes I don't, or we don't have the time to put into putting together a full docket for a specific topic and building a conversation that way. So we're going to treat this show as the experiment we've treated it as <laughs> since its inception. And uh, we're going to try a new sort of like more fluid style, which I'm sure this introduction completely defeats the purpose of. Uh, so Mia hasn't been with us for a while. Uh, and I, um, so you've been moving and starting a new job. Yeah. Within a week of each other, actually. But yes, I, I did start a new job and uh, moved apartments within the space of, of seven days. This is the second time that I have done that thing. Um, it you, went much better this time. How do you handle that? I I hate moving. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is also my second move in a year. Oh, um, are you some kind of masochist? So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's my, it's my second move in a year in Vancouver with a cat. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently um, they don't travel well. Yeah. How I handle it, uh, having learned from the first time I moved and started a job, which was in 2011 and um, propelled me to develop clinical depression from like that was a the catalyst point in terms of stress that oh. knocked me back and I never recovered. Um, this time around, I labeled the fuck out of every box. <laughs> the key is knowing exactly where everything is what is in every box and not labeling, not allowing yourself to have a single or like as few stuff boxes yeah. as possible. No, uh, um, as somebody yeah. who I like Paul and I were discussing it earlier. Uh, I asked him why he didn't move out of his apartment. He's like, cause I hate change and I'm rather comfortable. Uh, well, well, there's a little more to it than that, but maybe something we can not. Yeah. Um, it's I, I believe my version of the story covered all the bases we yeah. need to cover, uh, but I I'm, I agree with him on the I hate change part. I hate moving, and <clears throat> the best thing I ever did was buy tape that had rooms written on it. So like yeah. one roll for bathroom, there was like two different colors for bathrooms. It was like bathroom one, bathroom two, and the second best decision we ever made was hiring movers, just guys to yeah. come and pick up my shit and move it. I can unpack it. But if you could just come and take it where I need it to go, best decision we've ever made. And we got married within the past year. And I still think that's the best decision <laughs> we ever made. Um, yeah, so this time I didn't use movers. I, um, My brother and his girlfriend and uh, a couple of my friends, we did the U-Haul thing, but it actually worked out really well. Yeah. Um, I feel and, like you need uh, a reliable crew for that. Yeah, my brother's kind of a superhero. Um, <laughs> in his his day job is as a lumberjack, essentially. Are you fucking serious? Yeah. Does he yeah. work for like yeah. one of those cabin building companies? He 
it's in forestry. He just like he gets yeah. flown out to the middle of goddamn nowhere in BC to like mark trees that they're gonna. How they're have gonna... we not talked about this before? I, I can't believe this cool. has never come up. I have a forester in anyway. the family, actually. Huh. Yeah, my cousin Kate uh, is married to one. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So this time around, like, really, um, I was super spooked because. I really didn't want to go through like a depression, a depressive crash again. Yeah, no, I, so, that's an understandable desire to not want being, to do something. Being aware of that was really helpful, and yeah, like I said, just labeling the absolute shit out of everything so that I could unpack as I needed to. Also, I love this apartment because when you move twice in a year, you get rid of a lot of junk. Yeah. So almost everything has a place. For the first time in my entire life. I bet you that feels amazing. I'm it still dealing with nice. boxes that say stuff on them. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I'm just kind of like letting my uh, Pinterest freak flag fly. <laughs> Is that I've, where I've, the, uh, the color-coded bookshelf yep. came from? Yep. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, we had a discussion about that. Did you really? I missed that part of it. I saw the color-coded bookshelf and I was very impressed. Um, the discussion... The discussion we had has prompted me to consider putting together a finding aid when I move for my books. As in, like, assign an, an accession or a file what? number to everything. And but why don't, like, don't they come with, like, like an easily I've... catalogable system as in author and title? Yes, but I want to put together an actual list with locations and... Basically, I, I want to put, like, actually formally catalog my books because I lost a whole container of them for three and a half years. Is this what you, like, this is what you study is how to catalog books? In part. How would you do it? Well, I like, it would be based on, um, in terms of putting it together in, on a shelf, it would be based on topic, author, and series. And, how, like, is there, like, a number designation for each of those things? I would be assigning that, yeah. So it was a very loose... <laughs> As a very loose rule of thumb, because I used to have these bookshelves organized like that. The one in the corner there used to be uh, history textbooks. Okay. Um, the one that sits behind me used to be, uh, the first two shelves were religion and philosophy. Sorry, the first three shelves were religion and philosophy, and everything below that was science fiction. The shelf in the corner used to be fantasy and <laughs> detective novels. Nerd! So if it's I... Like, yeah, if and, if and when I do this, yeah, I would probably assign... Uh, yeah. A different code to each topic. Okay, and that's the first code. Is is that the first yeah, digit? It's your yeah, basic, it's your basic fall series file item. Yeah, exactly. Level. So, yeah. and I mean, like, <laughs> I I know kind of how to find a book in a library. Like, I know I find the number. And well, like, that's a whole different thing though, because that's Dewey Decimal. Yeah, but and isn't that, the same a, principle? Like, is it, it's like kind a, of. a Do, six digit code or something like Dewey that? Dewey Decimal can get really complicated because then if you're yeah. if you're working within a more specific uh subject area then you start having to apply cutter numbers which are numerical alphanumerical digits added on to the end based on it's basically doing math on it and that Why would you want to do that because you need to if you want to have a large collection um there's only like it's it's based on the hundreds for dewey decimal yeah and so eventually you're gonna run, run out, out of space numbers. so cutter numbers help you to then modify that further this is metadata stuff. This is not that's obscure for my purposes. I have maybe five or six hundred books, so I don't need to and go into so that. You kind of like level, I don't a, even have that many. What a three-digit code? Probably two, depending on whether or not I wanted to adopt something, a pre-existing system, because I could do a modified version of Dewey, or Library of Congress catalog. This is fucking serious, Matthew. I believe I it is serious. <laughs> I, so. A lot of people, you're not the first person to say, I... This is actually what I want to talk to Mia about okay. if we do an, an on-the-record so you're not the first person to call me on that shit, and I feel bad. So, I really find it disappointing that in society today, we assume that laughter implies mockery. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I, I find this amusing as fuck, but I'm not mocking anybody. I remember going oh, to shows at, metal shows at the Mead Hall with a friend of mine, and just... I was having a blast. I was like, holy shit, this is great. Look at these people have a good time. And she refused to take me ever again. I'm like, why? She's like, you laughed. I was like, I was having such a good time. My laughter is joyful. My my reaction to shock is laughter, actually. Like, it's really, really weird because, mm -hmm. like, um, once a, a choir, a fellow choir member fainted, like, in the middle of of rehearsal and it was very unexpected and I had to cover my mouth with my hands 
as much as possible because behind my hand I was smiling like ridiculously mm -hmm. wide because that's one thing that like it's one of those reactions that people have sometimes. Oh, I do the exact same thing if something on like that I absorb moves me to emotion. Like if it yeah. if it makes me feel something like here, I will first like giggle and then start to ball. So watching It's a Wonderful Life with me is apparently quite the exercise. Uh, there's a lot of like <laughs> <laughs> shit like that. Um, no. Yeah, but I'm not the only one who, who has a new job. Paul no, says, Paul has a new think, job. Right? I started last week at uh, the University of Alberta's Rare Books Library and Special Collections. Super jealous. Oh, you really should be. So then ex explain to Don't me what your task, day-to-day -day task is. Like what, what is it that you do? I feel like we're probably doing similar stuff. Probably not that far off right now. Um, I am going to get to specialize a lot more as we move further into the summer. Part of this is also, I'm going to have a job in the fall, but they can't formally tell me I have a job in the fall because it hasn't been signed off on yet. Okay. So that, like that, that that's a little bit. Right now, we've only been open, like the library that I work in was undergoing renovations for a year. Right. So we reopened. Which library do you work in again? Bruce Peel. Bruce Peel. Bruce Peel Special Collections. Technically, there's a greater Aegis because they got merged with the University Archives last year. So it used to be Bruce Peel Special Collections Library. Right. Now it's Bruce Peel Special Collections and, and Archives. What qualifies a book to end up in something, or a piece of writing to end up in a special collection? Uh, usually something a little bit rare. Do they have focus? Yeah. Do they tend to have focuses or? It's no. I mean, not yeah. for a rare, not for a, a rare book special collections in a university. That's just sort of where all of your old shit. We take like so any junk file. No, I mean, but in, I mean, no, in the sense that like it's kind of a catch-all. Like it's a catch-all for the like like a rare stuff and special things. So like the UBC Rare Book Special Collections has a um, has a papal bull. It has like a declaration from a pope. And somebody yeah. just like donates this to the yeah. library of the or wherever this university. Or they acquire it. Um, we have. Uh, the entirety of the Archdiocese of Salzburg's library going back to like the 15th century. It's one of our larger collections because 20 or 30 years ago um, the they, they were selling it and they uh, were trying to find some place that would take the entire collection. And so some I can't remember the, exactly how this happened, but either somebody from the university went to them. I think a professor who was doing research on this topic informed the university and somehow this conversation got facilitated, but they bought uh, like 700 year inclusive collection for like 60 grand and then they got another one from the like reading association of salzburg a couple of years later for the same price under the same thing so this is like tens of thousands of books going back to the 14th century on any number of subject by any number of volumes. yeah i mean this was this was the like the archbishop's Nearly. collection um so that was one uh we apparently have one of the largest entomology collections in north america because there was a, an entomologist or a, a researcher or something who endowed us with a, a significant amount of money uh, at some point in the past. But like part of the conditions of this was we had to spend the money on entomology books. So like the, the Madge collection is massive. Um, as my supervisor has said, the word is that the Smithsonian envies our entomology collection. So, um, Man. yeah, I don't We don't know necessarily if that's true. It's anecdotal, but still. Yeah. Um, so we only reopened to the public on Tuesday. Uh, so I'm still pretty new. Um, at the moment, the first week was just basically spent on myself and my coworkers' laptops, just doing research on the, the collections and digging through the website and kind of playing with the catalog. So is it, it's all, I'm assuming like, you know, what's, how many books are in each collection? What, no, no, I don't, I, I could find that. So you're, you're essentially building a database, a personal of database of what kind of information it is. That was why we had a week of training. And then this week, um, We've primarily, so basically we, myself and my coworker are only there for afternoon. So we switch off. Uh, the first hour and a half for me is spent transcribing letters. Um, you guys may or may not have ever heard of Sam Steele. We have like the world's large, foremost collection on Sam Steele. He was one of the first Mounties. He, okay. Like he was the archetype of the Mountie. By transcribing, you like, you read it. And As in I have a letter and I type it out. I can show you when I'm done. I'm doing it on my laptop. Okay. Um, and what's the purpose of doing that? To put, make it available for searching. So to make a digital copy. We're like searching. 15 years behind on actually even just accessioning our stuff. Really? Like putting yeah. it into a database and telling people we even have it, let alone yeah. making this available digitally. So the purpose of transcribing these letters is that people can then search through them by keyword as opposed to having to sit down and read through 
30 years worth of letters between Murray and Sam Steele. Um, that, that's not what I'm going to be doing all summer. Um, based oh, on, sounds... based on like interest area, my coworkers apparently got a real interest in book binding. Um, so on our first day, my supervisor was suggesting that they may have him, uh, put together an online exhibit on book, the history of book binding. Um, so I, uh, I, my I background really is in so archives. Do so how, how does this relate Mia then to what you do for a living? Like what your um, job? Because you started a new job recently too, and I don't know yes. if we said what it was. Uh, I haven't. So I'm I am the assistant. Um, I'm the archives assistant at the city of New Westminster. So I work for the city's um, historical archives. So you have a government job. Kind of. I basically work in Parks and Rec. <laughs> um, Do you fancy yourself more a Leslie or? Oh damn it! Now I'm gonna forget her name. Anne? No. April? Yes. That's the one I was looking for. Uh, yeah. I mean, all archivists are basically April Ludgate. We're just like, <laughs> people don't know. Um, but basically, so I'm doing, um, you know, the city's historical records um, and people's sort of people will come in and be like, my grandfather lived in New Westminster. Here's all this stuff. And we'll be like, okay, sure. And take it. Um, so, uh, I'm working with older historical records as well, um, and, uh, processing them, putting them into the database, also transcribing things, um, doing the arrangement and description, um, and, uh, also working with the public. So when someone comes in, New Westminster used to be the capital of British Columbia. Uh, did it really? Yeah. And they're really, 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 really sore about having lost that. I remember when they had this discussion in Alberta that Calgary should be made the capital, and people got, like, oddly upset about it. So, um, this, yeah. this has actually come up in the news, just as a very brief digression. There is a former federal MP uh, who has just founded a new party in Van on Vancouver Island in Victoria. Yes. The Vancouver yes. Island Party, and the idea yeah. is that they want to elect enough people to hold a referendum to um, have Vancouver Island go back to being its own province because <laughs> once upon a time vancouver island was its own colony and joined the colony of british columbia really? because they defaulted and the reason why victoria became the capital of bc oh, is because it's it's south of the 49th parallel i wish this had come up in like 20 minutes after we finished talking to me about what she's talking about because it would have been a brilliant like we just segue one into the other okay sorry bring it up again later sure <laughs> <laughs> So, but there's a lot of old houses in the U.S., so people come in and be like, I want to know about my house, and then we'll spend some time, like, looking so through the... So you're looking at, like, uh, like property records, ownership records, yep. Yep. maintenance you... records, uh, yep. renovation records, shit like that, or... Yeah, actually, exactly that. Tax and records. You pull, out, you pull out these huge... They call them rolls. No. They're, in fact, books, but they're, like, books that are, like, like three... Like, two and a half, three feet tall. I'm not Jesus. even joking. They're... They are a not insignificant portion of my height, and <laughs> I'm not a tall person. Over half. Um, no, but edging on half. <laughs> Nearly um, close enough to be concerning. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and you pull out these huge old books, and you flip through, and you find the lot number for that. You just you have to find that, and then you can see like what was the property worth in 1910. Is that what the and city valued it at? Yeah, it's it's the city rules, and uh, uh, it's really really upsetting because it's just like a full plot of land was worth fifteen hundred dollars in nineteen ten. It's it's one thing I hate about watching uh, Vancouver's Love It or List It, which I'm not sure if anybody other than me has ever seen I've, the show. I've heard of the thing. And, so the yeah. the premise of the show is like people who hate their house. Usually, it's people with organizational issues. I'm increasingly finding. Um, uh, a realtor comes in and shows them other houses in their price range. And a designer comes in and fixes their house. And they either sell the house or buy a new house. Um, which is fascinating. It's more fascinating to watch them yell at each other than it is to get the house. Either way, the people who have owned those houses for like 30 years are their, their ancestral, right? Like, so they've inherited them from parents who paid like eight thousand dollars for this house and this piece of property and they're gonna flip it for over a million and you're fuck that's upsetting <clears throat> oh my god it's it, how do you how do you how do you continue to look uh, at stuff like denial that? <laughs> fervent fervent denial 
servant denial. Knowing what you must pay in rent. Somehow it will work out and people of our generation will be able to live in Vancouver somehow. Maybe. Maybe. It doesn't bother you that what you pay in rent in a fraction of a year is what an entire piece of property was once worth? Oh, no, absolutely. Not adjusted for inflation? Absolutely, it bothers me. Um, But also, Vancouver is basically the worst, (laughs) like, the worst boyfriend the worst boyfriend because it's amazing here. Everything it's got awesome restaurants. Things are open late. It's He's got beautiful and the transit. sex is it's amazing. Beautiful. It's really gorgeous. It's a lot of fun. But then there's this toxic, like realistically, everyone should walk away from this because it's really not sustainable. Like especially when you know you could go to ontario where legally they're like rent uh landlords are not allowed to discriminate against people with pets for instance really yeah which would be really nice because they certainly fucking do that here and but but we stay because maybe we can change it one day we'll change it (laughs) i had no idea that ontario is rent control that's it's not even necessarily rent controlled it's just that you're legally if someone they're not allowed to say no pets really yeah so they could in theory just look for a candidate with no pets yeah but but if you don't tell them they can't kick you out afterwards yeah well you're not allowed to say you're not allowed to turn down people with pets before you even like see them right? right like yeah um and yeah anyway someday i'll just like I don't know. We won't even record a podcast about my feelings on the Vancouver housing market. I will just like rend my garments and run out into the street blabbing about it. <laughs> like it'll be on the news, don't you worry. Yeah, you That's got a way it. bigger distribution platform we could ever hope for. Hmm. So to loop back for just a second, well, yeah. what I was gonna say is that I'm not gonna be working on transcriptions all summer. Right. Uh that started about is about what you do for a living. And then we'll come right. back to that. Um, you might appreciate this, but just because of the archival background, uh, what they'd like to have me do is start arranging and describing some collections. Yep. Um, so in July, I'm probably going to go with the rest of the staff and get some training in Adam. Nice. Um, Adam is totally fine. It's built in Bootstrap. It looks nice. I've, I've heard that it's fairly efficient, which is yeah. nice. Uh, <clears throat> I know the people. I know several of the people who work on it because they are... I, they're part of my knitting circle. Oh, there you go. Um, so uh, yeah, so they're 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 cool people, and um, I don't know. For it's okay. So for listeners, let's talk about archival let's theory. Talk about our, <laughs> so um, Adam is uh, A T O M or uh, access to memory is is what it's short for, and um, it is it was built by a guy who did my exact program and then proceeded to go get a computer science degree and. Okay. Um, founded um like this company uh artifactual i think and they have built this program that sits that it's it's an open source thing um it's what would be a good analogy in terms of like other um programs it's that's a good question i could talk about like open source stuff from a library perspective but i don't think that helps it's kind of like open office, like everyone yeah. can use it. And it's a thing that is very, very useful. Um, and it standardizes, a f- it, 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 it brings some much needed standards and like just um, consistency across the board to yeah. how people are arranging mm-hmm. and describing archival stuff. And it also allows people to upload things to the internet much, much easier. I feel like it's sort of an open source attempt at trying to do something like the Dewey Decimal or Library of Congress catalog for the yeah. library set of things because that like Library of Congress is used by everybody, literally yeah. everybody because yeah. they've got thousands of subject terms and it's just easier to use that when you're setting up your collection and then modify it as needed. Um, yeah. Rad rules for archival description is um, no acronyms it's the worst sorry you're not in the library and archives world it's a alphabet soup yeah it's really alphabet soup sorry rad stands for what rules for archival description okay and that's there are t-shirts 
I mean, you're that's kidding me. Canadian archivists are rad. That's I, I, I could get behind that. <laughs> um, I haven't ever taken any formal training in rad. I just had to learn it on the job at my last one. So I, I've never actually sat down and read through the entire like 400 page catalog, which is rules for archival description. But I have read through a shortened version of that that somebody put together called rad revealed, which is only like 120 pages. <laughs> Well, this has been the segment yeah. of the show that we like to call Nerd! Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that was when I was talking about how I'm going to catalog my book collection. Well, yeah, that, it's like, a long segment. Like, I won't lie. It took about 15 minutes of the show. <laughs> but, yeah, anyways. Will and I are planning to do a, a full show. I, on uh, I'm going to leave him my snowball mic so that you can do that. As long as I don't <laughs> I, have to produce it, it, you I'm, guys I, have fun. Okay, Fuck. I don't know. Yeah, I lied. Yeah. I'll even put a I'll put a garage band bumper on the beginning of it, whichever one you pick. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Well, as long as it comes to me ready to post, happy yeah. camper. Um shifting from being archive nerds to politics nerds, do we want where do we even want to start? Do we want to the talk? The world's about, gonna probably explode. Oh my god. It, I, World War Three <laughs> is on its way. Rarely in my life do I do I sit down and kind of try to ignore something that's happening in the world, like election-wise? Like if it, if it affects me, I'll go vote and I'll pay attention. Like that sounds a little yeah. bit flippant, but I, like I hate to watch coverage almost at this point because it's just it's upsetting. So I'll sit down yeah. and watch a movie, and rarely in my life do I have a chance to glance down at my little CBC update and go, "Whoa." <laughs> I've actually done it twice in the past year. Uh, once when Rachel Notley was elected premier, mm. and once when the English said, fuck you, Europe. Yeah. And the rest of the world? Yeah, and pretty much everybody. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to make this decision because we hate foreigners. So I have a couple of friends who are either living like from and living in the UK or born there and live here. And so I've seen a lot of... I've, been on facebook a lot more the past couple days because of that and one buddy in particular lives in south london uh young fella and he's a couple years younger than i am um has had a lot to say about this because he was very ardently pro-remain and has yeah. been as he put it heartbroken by the result mm -hmm. um and, and he's a he's a expat did you say no he's from born and raised in england oh so he still lives there. oh yeah he lives in south london okay um i know a couple other people who were born there and came here as kids but um, this one guy in particular uh, has had a lot to say. And one of the comments, one of the things I've kind of picked up on from his posts and engaging a little bit with what he's had to say uh, is that it was really divided along generational lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the stats even bear that out. It's... And that it's it's like the, the young, basically anybody under the age of 45 generally voted remain. Yeah. And people over that age voted to leave. And one of the really striking things about that is, at, like, his comment, which was, or one of the things he reposted, <clears throat> was that uh, a generation which had benefits which his, in particular, yeah. will never see, uh, including free travel throughout Europe and jobs totally. and all of this, they're now taking away from his generation. Because he's young enough, he's never really had a chance to do a lot of that. But that is, I find that to be an oddly British thing to do. Like, you could even say it's similar to, like, the election of Margaret Thatcher and her policies are kind of like the English people kicking the ladder down behind them. Well, the election of Thatcher was, you got to keep in mind the legacy of the end of the colonial era of Thatcher's <laughs> because like the eighties was the destruction of labor unions and a, a significantly greater presence of non white people in England. I don't, and I don't know if I said this to you. I, I know <clears throat> I didn't say it to me. Uh, it's, it didn't, it took me till after they left for it to occur to me, but, just because the rhetoric around it is very reminiscent of like American anarcho-capitalism mm -hmm. or libertarianism. Uh, but the thing about the European Union is it's a, it's a trade bloc that recognized labor as a commodity. Mm. Like I, I can't, despite the fact that Canada and America and the United States are involved in a lot of trade packs or trade uh, unions, I can't legally work in the U S without a shitload of visas and permits. And that's the difference stuff like that in the eu is it recognized that oh your labor is a commodity and we need a standard across the board like a labor standard across the board i do feel like a lot of that is the legacy of different political implications though because part of the political aspect of the european union has always been to try and prevent 
the outbreak of another mm-hmm. major continental war it through was, greater financial. Um, it was Churchill's <clears throat> idea. Well, because there was an attempt at that before. That was what, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, mm-hmm. the Congress of Europe, like that was the entire intention was to try and prevent another shooting war. And that led to World War One and Two. Um, <laughs> so it didn't work out very well uh, for anybody. But one of the things that I, I can't help but think about that in the context of the U.S. and Canada in particular is that we haven't been in a shooting war since 1812. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. we've been up until 9-11. <clears throat> we didn't even have a real border. No. When I was a child, I, I could go to the United States without a passport. It oh, was yeah. a, do you have anything you want to declare in the car? No? All right, keep going. Yep. Um, I mean, not even a child. I was into my teens when that mm-hmm. happened. So, I was uh, in high school when 9-11 happened, and I remember the distinct change. It's oh. interesting to think of it as a waypoint in time that happened that long ago. Well, I was, like, I'm, I'm from an upper middle class background, so I traveled a lot as a child. Like, my dad was a pretty successful lawyer, so, like, I've been flying since I was four younger than but i remember flying since i was four um and so that was something that i really noticed because from one year to the next it was like you'd go to the airport and they just wave you through to yeah. metal detectors and taking off shoes and a full pat down and i remember one of the last times i was in the states where i, I felt like i was going through through some bizarro world from what i used to do i far more enjoy watching uh bald white men have fits in the in the lineup about how they're not like why they should have to take their shoes off that like it's always a guy wearing a shirt that like has the word jesus or bible printed on it so when i flew out to ontario and i was going through security on the way there a couple months ago there was a guy who tried to go through security with a full bottle of orange juice (laughs) and metal and was setting the thing off and so they'd be like sir you have to go back through so he rang it off again and then they pulled out his bag and they're going oh like you can't take liquid on you haven't been able to since 2003 you can't sealed no, it's sealed up to an ounce. You can't bring more than that. Um, which is why they, they sell those little itty-bitty bottles in the liquor stores uh, before you can get through like pre-security liquor stores and airports. You can buy those specifically for travel. Um, but that, so that like he was going back and forth a couple times and then he was going to drink it. And they're like, you have to do that back before security. Yep. And then he kept setting it off. Then he tried to give it to them. And then he had to go back through the line. And he ended up shouting with the security guards. And I'm going like... This was 15 years ago. How do you not know you can't do this? Have you not traveled because in a decade and a half? Because air travel is restrictively expensive. Well, yeah, I suppose. But this guy did not give off the I haven't traveled in 20 years vibe. I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure that this has <clears throat> happened to our parents and, and especially, I mean, they lived through the cold war when it was called the cold war right. we're yeah. still living in, in the, the cold, cold war. war it's just not called that anymore no. we had a 15 year um, interregnum now we're back yeah <laughs> when putin was not there, during the crazy was, 90s yeah part of the reason i hated mission impossible 5 whatever one happens in the kremlin because i'm like are we really still scared of russians like is it yeah. yes it we are because apparently yes we are in fact scared um, of russians but uh you know, so like they had actual nuclear like war to think about. And uh, now I'm talking to my mom and she's like, no, I think we were safer in the Cold War because if we were going to go down, all of us were going to mm-hmm. go down pretty much instantaneously. And that's pretty scary. Thought. <laughs> um, but is it scarier to sit with like somebody might just bring a small nuclear device and blow it up in the city? Cobalt like, blue. What? That's what terrifies me is a dirty bomb with cobalt it's blue. Cobalt blue. It's a radioactive uh, material, but it has a sh- it has a, a half life of like twenty years. So it's a nuke. Yeah. It will contaminate the territory. It's just as effective. Uh-huh. But if you blow something up with cobalt blue, you can move back in within a decade or two. Hmm. That's terrifying to me. Um, it feels as though. Yeah, it just, I don't know, 2016 feels as though it's the year that things that we held to be pretty stable just seem to aren't sort of stable anymore. <laughs> and it, and it runs it like... Yeah, like no, when no. you look back at it, all of these things were not stable. And part of what I find fascinating is that um, we're totally i mean in every in some way every generation is totally unprecedented because yeah. like especially in the 20th century things ramped up and changed mm-hmm. so quickly basically on an exponential scale look at how we're recording we're still, this show right 
right. we're on we're still doing that we're yeah. a long ways away looking at each other mm-hmm. over a computer screen recording into right. electronic mics that we're going to put up on the internet right yeah and somebody in belgium will listen to it. yeah or yeah. france um and uh so it's really impressive. like we have nowhere to like we can't really come through history to sort of get precedent that things are going to be okay it's true and and like Trump exemplifies that because yep. he's baffled American well, politicos. Can't look on history with that because fas- this is exactly how it, fascism happens. True. But he's he's baffled the American political observer by doing everything you shouldn't do and continuing to become more popular. I just about an about three hours ago read a very in depth NBC article on um, Trump. It was called Trump Nation. Mm-hmm. And they went in and asked people why. Uh, they went to Trump rallies and yeah. said, why? Why, are you, why are you voting? We want to represent you as honestly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they had really, really good charts, like like props yeah. to NC in a world where, like, one of my concerns is basically the fact that we first we made journalism a commodity and then... <laughs> are you, as a slight tangent, are you a Jesse Brown fan at all? that's not like based on what you just said jesse brown should be right up your alley it's all about media criticism i may not have consumed much of, of that and... oh yeah i am new i am like positive to neutral on him okay. he i have listened to like his his episode on gian gameshi was fucking great oh yeah all of his coverage like, of that has been great all of his coverage is good but he's also the type of person that i would approach with caution in terms of <laughs> well said yeah, um, but no, I do know who he is. Um, okay, so journalism being commodified. Yeah, but so NBC, but they went and like really, I understand, I do. I have compassion for the white middle class that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Well, it the, hasn't existed the, in decades. The voters who have been left behind and, you know, they, the, the, the underfunding of, of education has been going on for long enough that people, that those people are old enough to now vote. Like, <laughs> this is now a generational problem of ignorance in part, that's part of it. Do you think um, that's where the rampant anti-intellectualism comes from? Is yeah. this a generation who got a shitty education? Yeah, kind of. So why doesn't that affect a, the, our generation? We are, in, we are part of a very privileged group. Also, we're Canadian. Mm. Canada didn't do that. Like yeah, fair our public schools still need help. All public school systems do. Yeah. But we didn't def- we didn't defund them as aggressively mm. as the states did where people come out of high school like public high school yeah. not knowing very very basic things. Mm-hmm. Um so this, but the, you know, they're, they're watching their job, their jobs no longer exist. Their livelihoods no longer exist. They don't know why, uh, except that there seem to be a lot more brown people around. <laughs> well, and speaking of uh, um, so... technological change, the, the relatively unskilled, the guy that, or gal, but generally I think guy that 30 years ago could have gone with a high school education and yeah. gotten a six, low six figure job mm-hmm. doing something that involved fairly unskilled manual labor now yeah. is looked like he can't get a job period well, but let alone something that pays out well yeah and it's but that's the devalue of of actual labor yeah right? robots are doing it for him now. not even that like you don't, no, people it's, don't understand now look down on that yeah and people yeah. don't seem to understand like what a skill most things are <laughs> like it's it's really easy and we talked about this with uh with cory that it's easy to shit on a server or yeah. somebody in service but that's a fucking skill that's a trade that should be respected and to suggest that it's for teenagers or people who don't know anything or don't work hard is kind of insulting to all the people that work Very those jobs awesome. because you know why you hate going to restaurants or you hate going there and you bitch about this is because you devalued the position in the first place and now people doing it people who are good at it don't want to do it because it doesn't pay shit well, speaking of masochistic yeah. tendencies, I've been reading the Edmonton Journal's comment section. Oh, a lot why? Lately. Why? I don't why? know. I don't know. Let's never read the newspaper com- so, comment section. One of the things that has come up in a lot of because I read a lot about the hospitality industry um, is minimum wage. Because there's there was a thing somebody came out this week and said we should pay be paying everybody fifteen dollars an hour yes, or more uh, as a minimum wage, and the response was from a lot of people. Uh, something along the lines of well teenagers 
and we should be paying there should be two minimum wages then because some kid working at home you know it should you but the facts don't support the, what you're the, saying. the thing which stuck with me the most was that somebody said full-time in a minimum wage job should not be enough to pay a living wage yes, and that should. is exactly what a minimum wage it's is for that is literally the definition of it but that is this myth this conception that if you're working full-time at minimum wage at a mcdonald's you shouldn't be able to pay for your rent but the definition of a minimum wage is you should be able to support yeah. yourself and a dependent like not comfortably but not like staying awake wondering if you can pay the bills mm-hmm. uh, at 40 hours a week even milton friedman advocated for a guaranteed wage like yeah like this is the thing is that these think the structures of the 20th century are not necessarily built to last no the, well nothing's built to last like that's nothing's built point, to last right? but the things that there's we, no money in I that mean, shit but the things that really that we've we've grown up accepting as just sort of the way things are, um, we're seeing kind of fracture, and that's really scary because I would really like to live to you know die of old age. <laughs> um, and uh, the part of it, honestly, is and I've floated this idea with people, and like yeah, there's some agreement that like part of the issue is that a massive voting block is entering the cantankerous yeah it's going to die before this is a problem yeah and when they start dying things are if we're still alive things Things will get better for our generation because we will have now the numbers do you but you don't think we do already like no that's part of why brexit happened i guess that's true is that the boomers still vastly outnumber the... And unfortunately, old people are the only ones who vote consistently. Yeah. Um, although I think that we're a great deal better than Generation X, who, like, notoriously was too cool to vote. Like, yeah. I think that our generation, what what I think we would call early millennial, like, yeah. we're... Yeah. I, we're on the cusp. Like, I, I'm, cusp. I'm 30. I'm assuming you're in the same... 27. 27? Okay, so yeah, close yeah. enough. Paul, same I'm deal. old enough to remember before the internet, but I'm young enough that I grew up along with the internet. Right, yeah. And Paul and I have had this discussion many times. Like we yeah. kind of grew up that way. Um, And so, you know, like, capitalism really doesn't work. No, not consistently and not, not long-term. Enough. Well, just not for enough people. And, uh, yeah, like, we're gonna see a lot of rearrangement of of, of Stuff that we thought was pretty solid, and so hopefully you we'll survive it. Breakfast Brexit as a catalyst. For- well, I mean, the problem now, because I mean, I think that that was kind of part of life for a good few centuries, was tension builds up until we have a war, and that kind of relieves the tension, and then you start over. But now we have nuclear weapons. Yeah, so that's we have the ability. Like, it's long been kind of held that. The next world war will be the last. Um, um, something which I, I would also point out, which I think is sometimes mm-hmm. forgotten, is chemical warfare and gas. Because mm-hmm. yeah. so the letters that I've been transcribing at work this week are in 1914 and 15. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and it, it's a, it's a wife writing to her husband yeah. who was a, a general and doing training in England. Huh. Um, again, one of the first okay. Mounties. So like, look up Sam Steele sometime. Okay. He's not well known now. Total aside, um, related to that. Do you remember the Heritage Minutes from back in the day when we were kids? Yeah. Do you remember the one, one? Do you remember the one where there's the American who comes in and tries to bring in a gun, and a guy comes over and says, "We don't do that in Canada." No. Do you remember that? Okay. Well, that was Sam Steele. Anyways, besides the point. So, this is in in mid 1915. The wife is frequently like it's come up in about five or six letters now. Advocated the use of poison gas on the Germans. Uh, uh, and she's going, uh, "Well, those monsters are doing whatever, so we need to do." everything in our power to ensure that they don't so yeah i mean along the same lines the previous wars were even after the invention of the gatling gun which was sort of seen as a game changer in the 19th century and the development of trench warfare it was still people shooting at each other now you're dropping sarin gas or a nuclear bomb or yeah drones yes the simpsons predicted it thing is that um and then i don't know if we want to see sort of mess mesh into the next segment. yeah yeah no i was just thinking about um, it actually because like the next thing that we kind of had planned to 
we all knew we were going to talk about politics and then it was going to get depressing as fuck. I'm kind of proud of us that we have not brought Trump up once in the actual recording, or, like, barely acknowledged barely. his existence. Because it's not, like, you could point out that it's not unique to America, this, like, xenophobic white guy rhetoric that's driving a oh, lot no. of wedges. Derek Fildebrandt. And the Wild Rose is going to eat another leader within, what, two years? Without Maybe. even having to go through an election? We'll see. Like, Austria just narrowly missed electing a very, very, very mm-hmm. right-wing nationalistic person. France yeah. has Marie well, Le Pen, who's, yeah. like, has the biggest case of crazy eyes I've ever seen. But still like, more reasonable about a lot of shit than you would ever expect a North American yeah. politician to be. Uh, the didn't um, yeah. the Australians recently start to skew aggressively yep. right wing, yep. and that's a whole nother story because they don't believe that people have rights. So it's just like, and it really is crazy because you look around and all of these younger people with, I mean, they're horrible trolls and everything, and there's always going to be the reactionary side, but like, we are as a block way different from what the results from the pure vote is saying and that's partly because of we're living through the last gasp of the boomers as a block then how do you account for like program or maybe maybe you wouldn't consider i I have a friend who argues that the 90s was actually a far more uh progressive time in history than the past couple of decades that we've lived through like, could you imagine a musical artist wearing condoms in their hair? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Like, that's the mm, thing. In, now? in many, ways, Lady in many Gaga. ways, they're right. Um, In other ways, no. <clears throat> but the 90s was lovely. There was nothing to worry about. End of history. Yeah, and it what? was the end of... Yeah. Have you never come across that term? No. Um, I want to see his name Fujikawa, something like that. He was an American historian who wrote that uh, the entire course of history had been essentially to get us to the point of American society in the nineties post cold war. So that was, that was the pinnacle of human civilization. So like 92 on. So yeah, basically after the collapse of the cold war, when America was the quote unquote hyperpower, um, that was the end of history. We had reached the pinnacle and that, that he's since actually renounced his, like he wrote a book about it and he since said, right. I was fucking crazy, but there was a, a theory amongst like particularly what led to the neocons of the Bush administration, interesting. Who had this idea <laughs> that with the fall of the Soviet Union and the embrace of theoretical democracy amongst all of the major powers in the world, well, let's let's be honest here. Nineties yeah. Russian democracy was not that was no, but the, the also whole other topic. The but, neocons and their fucked up parents, the Reaganites, <clears throat> were not exactly pro democracy either because no. they were not really opposed to. Opposed contract. to deposing democratically elected governments that didn't line up with their interests. Point being, though, that, that that was the idea. That was the reigning uh, idea in major American political circles from, like, 93 or 94, whenever this came out, straight on to, like, 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then it became the war on terror, which, yes. yeah. whatever the fuck so, that's supposed to be. I have a friend who has said a better... that he believes, he believes that the role of president should be... Um, given to the person who wants it the least and yeah. then he should get off for be- for good behavior. I agree. He should be let go um, to have the opportunity to get parole, basically. Wasn't there a CBC radio drama that um, that told the story of an elected MP who was dying of something, like who had a fatal disease and he could only ever run for one? Like he was only going to live to essentially the end of his term? Huh. I, um, no. Nobody else knows about this? There is actually an MP who yeah, several who have died, but but so sorry he learns this fact while he's running. So it like completely the way I understood it. I never listened to the damn thing, but the way I understood it, he shifted his campaign because I can't run again. Right? What's like, President never... Bartlett in his second term? Right. If only. Did you ever watch the West Wing, Mia? No. Oh really? It's on my list. I know. Mm-hmm. It's the first, at least the first three seasons are totally worth it. If you ever make it out here uh, to Edmonton, I will loan you the first three seasons. I own them on DVD. Um, So he has MS and that becomes a thing which they hide for the first couple seasons. But when he runs for a second term, they don't announce it. But it's something that there's a poll on it. uh, Marley Madsen. Yeah. Who plays their pollster. Fuck, she's good in that show. Um, 
But they had a couple episodes where they discussed the morality of him running for another term, knowing that there was a possibility mm-hmm. that he might be not capable of serving to the end of it. And well, and it's not even there's a poll like good chunk of one season where he's not the president. Yeah. Because his daughter's been kidnapped. Um Oh, yeah. Let's point, not. Anyway, I, I, the only thing I will Sorry. say is that uh, it's been quoted in the media a lot recently that um, Trump's recently let go campaign manager was espousing "Let Trump be Trump." That is a reference yeah. to the the campaign yeah. for Bart- Bartlett. Billy Bartlett. He was losing, and then some guy comes up. To, his opponent comes up to him and says something really douchey, and I forget what it is after an interview. And he's like, "You know what? I I've right this minute decided I'm going to crush you." And yes, he goes I and remember that, and not for Fuck anything else, but good. because of what you just yeah, said to me, I'm gonna crush that. you. And he so then he lays out for the dude, like I'm gonna destroy you in this election, and here's how I'm gonna do it. All because you said that to me. Fuck, oh, he was great. That was a good show. Anyway, sorry. Um, let's. So we're we're like skewing into it. Let's take like a quick break, and we'll come right back, and we'll move into the next section because we're we're at about an hour now. Yeah. Um, so we'll move into the next, now that we've talked about real life things, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about big things. Hmm? We'll talk more about the West Wing. Yeah, sure. We can, we'll do a, You and I can sit down and do a whole episode about the West Wing. Oh, Fuck, Kelsey will come on that episode because Kelsey's the reason I love the West Wing. My stepmom's the reason. Do you know there is a drinking game based on that? There's a drinking game based on anything. There's a drinking game based on a podcast that's only got 12 episodes that's produced here in Edmonton awesome um i don't i don't know if you heard the uh, when i sat down with uh i did scene you and her- some lovely things did um, i did yeah, i really with the scene and hurt? oh yeah yeah you uh, are a get you know how to fucking fill time that's that's the <laughs> most valuable asset a podcaster can have i know you mean that as a compliment but that doesn't you know how to kill time no that's- fill time not kill time fill content like in an audio based format the person who can talk for the longest is king <laughs> or queen this is perhaps the single time ever that my propensity for talking has not <laughs> led me to like flee in tears from the room um but the one of the shows that i mentioned that i really enjoy is called the lip talk podcast because it fulfills my desire for a voyeuristic podcast like it allows me to learn things about a community that i wouldn't otherwise learn that they want to tell me without injecting myself into the space, right? Without like, I'm a white, straight, cis man, and I want to learn things about this. Like, tell me everything. You're going to love our show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Archival it, it, theory. Like, they, they, <laughs> they do a show that then they, like, it's, it's, some of it's funny, and they talk about the drag community, but I've learned so much about the drag community just by listening to them, and then I shouted them out. But they've got, there's a drinking game associated with that podcast. <laughs> like, every time they say something about, uh, I don't want to be shady, but you have to take a drink, and, the big one that I remember, which Mia won't get, but you will, from the West Wing. Uh, uh, what's his name? Sheen. Um, Martin Sheen. Yeah. He's got in, some kind of injury to his shoulder. So if you ever notice, whenever he puts on a suit jacket, he pulls it over his head. Yeah, neck. and does this. So there's do a shot whenever he does that. But that's <laughs> the one that I really remember. Okay, seriously, break, and then we'll come back. <laughs> All right. 